Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to this uh, virtual table gathering for the 29th of March. We're glad that you're here and whether you're joining us live via video or later on uh, via our um, podcast, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, we begin each of our gatherings the same way, and I have our title today. Um, Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in his name, he promises to be there in our midst. So, we, we light this candle, this candle to signify. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin, all right? I'll, I'll lead us. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, although it is a different way for us to meet together as the church. We are the church, and we are gathering now. We pray for your promised presence that it might be made aware to us as we uh, connect together and we dig into your word and spend some time in fellowship together for we make our prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 All right. I did remember I'm all set here and pull that one down. All right. So uh, we are finishing up our series entitled why do we need a savior this week we've been doing this for the past seven weeks and what i'd like to do for our opening and we were rather successful last week so i'm going to attempt to do it again this week is i'd like to divide you up into uh what are called breakout rooms here and in these breakout rooms i'm just going to give you a few minutes to answer a, a couple of questions like we might normally do uh, when we divide up around the table and um, the question I want you to consider initially, and then I can check in on you and I can also send you the follow-up question. Um, obviously, we are living in a world that's filled with fluidity and all kinds of conflicting messages. And it's very difficult to know what to believe and who to trust. So here's the question I want you guys to discuss in your groups, and I'll put you in those groups in just a moment. The question is, how much information do you need before you believe something someone says? And I'll type it in and send it to your, your groups as well, so you'll have it. How much information do you need before you believe, some, believe something that someone says? All right, everybody understand the question? And then I'll type it in for you. So I'm gonna send you into breakout groups uh let's go into let's get it down to that all right so i'm going to send you into breakout groups i'll type in the question so that you have it but one more time how much information do you need before you believe something someone says all right i'm going to send you to your groups now
All right, welcome back everyone from your breakout groups. That looks really cool. I love sending you into breakout groups. And those of you who came in a little bit late, um, I just assigned you straight in. So um, hopefully you were able to join in the conversation without too much confusion. But um, I'm interested to hear what some of your group responses were um, as it relates to this idea of in this world that we live in that has all kinds of fluidity and conflicting messages. It's hard to know what and who to believe or who to trust, I guess is a better way to say it. So how much information did you guys decide that you needed before you believe what someone says? Or is that even an issue at all? We missed the first part of the question. Say it again. I was just repeating. How much information do you need before you believe something somebody says, or maybe I should expand it to say something that, um, you read even now in today's world. Okay, I'm gonna jump in here because I figure we're gonna have 45 people jump in here in a minute. Sure. Um, so I think what our group came up with was that it depends on a number of factors. Um, one factor is the individual's credibility with us personally. One, uh, another is um, their credibility on the subject they're talking about. Um, another one is how much what they're saying matches up with what we already know to be true. And another one is uh, individually um, how old we are because the older you are, the, the less likely you are to uh, change your views on something given new information. Okay. I find that, that that's interesting, the, the part where you mentioned that uh, credibility in some ways depends on whether it matches up what we know to be true, which is an interesting statement right there, what we know to be true. So some sort we of confirmation bias maybe in there? Yes. Yeah, we, we kind of pointed that out as part of the problem. Um, and, yes. and too many people in this country of ours, world of ours, whatever, they don't go beyond one source of information. Um, and that's dangerous, you know. Um, you should at least, you know, try to find two or three different points of view, maybe somewhere in there you can find the truth. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't look for that. A lot of people are trying to find things that fit what they believe. Right. How important it is to us. Like if it's something really important, we give it a little bit more time and thought. Whereas if it's something kind of insignificant, we don't give it as much thought as to whether it's true or not. Okay. Other, other groups, other thoughts. How much information do you need before you believe something someone says or what someone writes? I guess we could also include that. Well, we also talked about personal experience. If someone is relating something that they personally experience, uh, that tends to lend credibility uh, to what they said and helps us believe it if if they saw it with their own eyes and they experienced it themselves 
one one good question Peter brought up was how much information do we uh, do we think that those who heard about Jesus's miracles, how much information did they need to believe that it was true? Um, they didn't have everything we have today. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have media. They didn't have the written uh, books and things like that. Uh, so uh, if, if someone experienced it, I tend to give them more credibility, I think. Okay. Other thoughts? You know, we didn't talk about this in our groups, but um, I would say it was also the more evidence that they present. For example, if somebody says, you know, the, you're more likely to do this than that, that may be one thing. But if somebody said, here's the research I did, I started with this opinion, uh, here's the test group I used, here's the results I got. Uh, and here's what I now believe after doing the research, then that's a lot more systematic in, and scientific in the way that, that they are presenting that information. Mm -hmm. yeah. Evidence-based, good. Others? Um, we did also talk about in our group who the source of the information is coming from and whether or not that's a person who you have a history of them giving you reliable information. Something that I've heard both in our group and in discussion in this larger group too that I just wanted to comment on um, is I've heard a lot of people kind of throw around the word credentials. And it's interesting because um, for Jason and I, uh, being in a position where we have obtained certain credentials at a high level, it's actually, Jason might be able to explain this better, but it's actually made us somewhat less trusting of people that have credentials than before because we see, <laughs> we see colleagues of ours with the same credentials making poor decisions and saying things that are not, not supported. And it now makes me more hesitant when I walk into a doctor's office just because they're an MD, I now know that that doesn't necessarily mean that they have access, not that they don't have access to good information, but that they are filled with legitimate sources of information. Yeah. Well, especially being in a position to teach people who are seeking our same credential and we see the caliber of student declining rapidly. Um, we know that some proportion of them, no matter how bad they are, you know, they'll put in the, they'll put in the bare minimum amount of work and they'll pass the test and they'll get our credential and then people will ascribe, you know, authority to them. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So what are the factors that then, are there any other factors besides credentialing that, uh, that help you, um, put more trust in people? Is it, is it really just that evidence? Is it credentials or is it something else or more on top of that? Uh, you also said um, your experience with them. I, I got that one too. Yeah. Yeah, which was something that, that we had talked about in our group that I know has already been mentioned. Yeah. If, they're, if there's somebody that has given you good information in the past or their information matches something that you already quote, no. Okay. 
We didn't talk about this in our group, but I would guess that we tend to believe things people say if they say it with authority rather than if they say it hesitantly and in a way that doesn't sound like they really even believe it themselves. One thing that I've been thinking about is just what's their motivation? Because mm. they could be telling you things that are accurate or putting their spin on it, but where are they coming from and what is their motivation? And you actually bring up a really good point with respect to that too, because a lot of what we, we, we usually tend to say that if it came from science, that it's something that's a reliable source of information, but going along the lines of what you just said, we, you also have to consider what was the motivation for the research, who reviewed it, who paid for it, because a lot of times things that we consider evidence-based are very biased sources of information. Yeah, it's like the, uh, you know, when, when they were trying to get us all to drink milk back in the day. Yes. Uh, they, they brought up all these scientific reports. Well, they were paid for by Kellogg's. And, and cereal companies like that. Yes. Wow. You're hitting it right on, Brian. And that happens, I mean, that happens in every area of science. So it's actually much more difficult to find good sources of information than you would think. And statistics can be manipulated where yes. you're technically telling the truth, but you're only telling one little snippet of what the statistics mean in the in the whole, much like if you take one scripture and read it, you can make a whole uh, philosophy out of that that's totally not at all what Jesus was teaching when he said that one sentence. <laughs> I find it interesting that, um, that all of these conversations that we're having that you had in your groups um, related to trust are not, are not uh, unique just to our situation. I had, a, like I said earlier, I had a conversation with the folks, um, leaders in Uganda, and they were, uh, talking about some of the isolation that they're requesting people to do. And one of the laws that they passed, and for those of you who have, who have been there or seen pictures of this, you'll, you'll get a kick out of this. They passed an ordinance yesterday that said, you're only allowed to have the driver and one person on the Boda, which is their little <laughs> motorcycle. So, you know, for those of you who have been there, you're laughing because literally it can shut down the entire economy there because it's very rare to see like one person on a Boda. So this idea of social distancing is like, you can't have six on a Boda. You can only have one on a Boda. Which, you know, that's a lighthearted example. But in our text for today, in Hebrews chapter 10, the author is dealing with the same kind of issues. It's just a different time period. The same questions of trust in terms of who do we believe about what we've heard that's happened you know, we've heard this message that the Messiah has come. We've heard from multiple sources that uh, uh, that he was, he came, that he's done all of these miracles. And yet there's a part of this audience who is wondering if that's really something they should trust. Because remember now, they've been taught for generations upon generations to put their trust, not in a person, but in a thing. It was called the law. And so they have generations of this belief and this trust in the law. And so the author of Hebrews, I would argue, is, is building a case. Maybe he's using things like certainly evidence. He's certainly going to 
throughout the book pulled in on his um, on his source, his firsthand sourcing, if you will, his experience, and even his motivation. There'll be some of that that's drawn into this, um, and that's why I'm I'm kind of tentatively titling our our chat to trust or not to trust because that's really what he's trying to identify here in the tenth chapter of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles in either print or digital format. Ah, I got a piece of tape on mine. That's not good. Well, if I can't read certain parts of it, someone's going to have to jump in and help me out there. So, well, that's not good. Another reason to use a digital Bible. You don't can't put tape on it and lose like four verses. That's not good. Oh, my. Anyway. All right. So uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 10. And uh, once you have your, your Bible there where you can reference it just don't nod your head or show me that you're all set and ready. It looks like everybody's, yep, I see some of you holding up. Um, we're ready to go. All right. So what I'm going to suggest is that I, I personally believe that Paul is the author of Hebrews. That's up for debate. But um, his style of writing is such that um, the way this entire book is, is laid out, um, if it's not Paul, it's someone with Pauline style teaching, rabbinic teaching. I would argue. And um, he begins in, in chapter 10 with what I would suggest is to give us some reasons not to trust the law, in this case, not to trust the law. And then later on in 5 through 18, reasons to trust in Christ. And that's the way he lays it down. So um, I'm going to have Brenda read for us uh, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And I want us to be listening for, and remember, I invited you to bring along a sheet of paper. You're going to need some paper later on, so at some point, you need to reach over and grab some. You might want to write it down. As you're listening or reading, the reasons why, and I think there's at least a couple here, maybe more, um, why we should not trust the law. Now, these first four verses of chapter 10 are basically a review of the previous nine chapters. In other words, he's been building this case, right? And he kind of summarizes it here. Um, reasons not to trust, all right? Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. So everybody, looks like everybody's about ready. They got pens. They got some, You can type it on your computer if you want. I mean, on your phone, anything you need, all right? Brenda, go ahead. The law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the real things themselves. It never can perfect the ones who are trying to draw near to God through the same sacrifices that are offered continually every year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? If the people carrying out their religious duties had been completely cleansed once, no one would have been aware of sin anymore. Instead, these sacrifices are a reminder of sin every year because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, take just a moment and review that again. 10, 1 to 4. And what we're looking for here is, and if you want to note it in your Bible, you can do that. You can jot them down or you can just uh, posit them in your head. He's giving us some reasons not to trust, in this case, the law. So as you look at it, someone pick one out for me, a reason not to trust. I see two reasons, basically, they're not real and they can't perfect us, they're ineffective. 
So it's just the shadow, not the real thing. And then if I heard you right, the second one, it's, it's, it can't perfect us, right? Is that what you said, Peter? Yeah, yes, they are ineffective. Ineffective, all right. It's just a shadow, not the real thing, and it's imperfect. Anybody else? They stopped being offered. I'm sorry, Johannes? They stopped being offered. Yeah, so they stopped being offered. Um, okay, I'm gonna think, I'm thinking about how that one will play out, but that's good, Kylie? It's not complete. Okay, it's not complete. Yeah, I mean, as a lighting guide, the, the shadow comment definitely sticks out with me um, because you can look at what a shadow looks like, but depending on the what is casting that shadow can be absolutely different. You know, if you're talking about hand puppets or just the angle or the multiple things making it look like a whole. Um, so that's absolutely fascinating for me as a lighting guide you know, that the, it's, the shadow is not the real thing itself. So a shadow like could be misinterpreted of what the actual real thing is. And by the way, did that happen? Was the shadow misinterpreted? Yes. But certainly, right? You know, eventually it was, they, they somehow missed the connection of what was happening. So if it's just a shadow and not the real thing, how is that a reason not to trust? Picking up maybe following up a little bit on what Dan said and a couple others. So how is that a reason not to trust? Well, shadows are here one second and gone the next, depending on the lighting environment. Okay. Shadows are also the absence of light. They're, they're the darkness that, you know, that is, not seen by the light, if that makes sense. Yeah, good. Shadows are an incomplete, shadows are an incomplete picture of the truth. That's true. They're covering can the be real real. thing. Sherry, say it again. They're covering the real thing. Yeah, covering the real thing, Bill? Yeah, it's covering uh, up the real light. Shadow can be manipulated. Ooh, that's an interesting one. A shadow can be manipulated. Well, and I think the shadow is also kind of more black and white or yellow and white or yellow and black. Right. Um, and that it doesn't leave any room for gray, right or wrong. So the follow-up question then would be, in what way is the law a shadow of the good things to come? I mean, it's... I mean, I basically could just, it's, it's good because it is a shadow of the good things to come. It's, it's a picture. Okay. Like it's, like it's helpful if, depending on where you're sitting and you can't see around the corner, you see a shadow that somebody is coming around the corner. So like it's giving you information ahead of time. Well, I like that one. Good. It kind of reminds me of the veil that got torn from the top to the bottom, and then it revealed the, the real Holy of Holies kind of thing. That's good. So shadows make me think of Peter Pan. And so a shadow is always connected to its source. You can uh -huh. never disconnect it. 
I love it. The shadow is always connected to its source. It's never disconnected. That's true. To use a David type example. The like law King David? No, you David. Oh. <laughs> the law is the yellow tail of wine. It is the shadow of talking about the brand. Uh, I think for those of you who don't understand that reference, Yellowtail is a very inexpensive uh, wine that's readily available. And as some people who have who are showing me now, they're sticking their tongues out, going, "Hmm, it's it's a it's a substitute for a better thing," is what I think you're saying. Um, Caitlin is waving her hand, "Hallelujah!" I think is what she's saying. Yeah. Other reasons why uh, the law is a shadow of good things to come. Well, it's like they talked about in the scriptures that if it did work, then they'd feel good all the time and not feel guilty anymore. And so maybe that's how they felt right after, immediately after they made a sacrifice, they felt like, oh, good, that load is off of me. And so it's a shadow of always feeling that way once something more effective comes along. Well, that's an interesting thought. Do you... How many of you think you would feel that way when you, if you were in that system and you went to offer your yearly sacrifice, do you feel like, um, or do you, do you think perhaps you would feel a sense of relief or would you also be wondering if you could trust that to take away your guilt? In uh, late experience. Go ahead, Mike. Um, as a former uh, Catholic, I would go to confession as a young boy and teenager. And uh, after I would come out of confession, I would feel cleansed. Uh, and I did believe that I was cleansed of my sins and I had a fresh slate to start the day <laughs> over with. <laughs> I was going to say week, but <laughs> to start the day over with. Uh, but I always knew I was going to have to go back to confession again. But you trusted that it was uh, effective in that moment. Yes. The question is, is, does one's behavior change then if they know all they had to do was a sacrifice at the end of the year? That's a good, that's a good point, Dan. Um, but that was you, Dan, right? Yes, it was. <laughs> uh, that was a good point. Uh, from my own personal experience, I didn't look at it that way. In fact, I tried, I always made another commitment to be good. You know, I'm gonna- That's part good. of it. That's part of the confession at the end, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the first argument, the first reason he gives us, and you guys are great at picking it out, is it's a shadow. It's not the real thing. And although it does point us to the certain way, you would never really fully trust a shadow, would you? I mean, if you saw a shadow of someone versus the real thing, I mean, the level of trust in a shadow is better than nothing at all, but certainly you would certainly trust better if you could actually physically, physically see that person. So reason number one, it's just a shadow. The second one, Peter identified, we could follow up here, is it cannot perfect us and allow us to draw close to God. How does verse two prove the conclusion in verse one that the law cannot make perfect those who draw near. So you're looking at verse two. How does verse two 
prove the conclusion of verse one, that the law cannot make perfect those who draw near? Because the, the sacrifices had to be perpetual. There wasn't, they had to keep doing it over and over again. Okay. Yeah, it's an interesting logic. Like if these sacrifices, if these practices were supposed to make everyone clean and perfect, then why, you know, wouldn't we all have done it once and, you know, now we're perfect and we can move on. Well, I, th I think it's saying that it was an insufficient sacrifice, you know, the, the sacrifice that truly paid that price. There was nothing they could do that actually paid that price. So does that mean that animal sacrifices accomplished nothing? No. Okay. So no, I think he, he put it, he put it in that, in that very verse that, or sorry, in um, verse three is that they're a reminder of sin every year. So and it's still, it's still a command and something we're supposed to follow. Kind of like praying. We, we do, we pray because God tells us to pray and that's how we stay in relationship with him. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you're going to make a certain outcome happen. Okay. Well, there are also, it's also reminding everyone that we still have a need. And that's the, yeah, so what the law could not do, it can't perfect us, but what it did do is what verse three tells us, right? It's a constant reminder of what? Sin. Yeah. Of our sin, of that need that, and, and that's really, I think, the first testament promise of these rituals, this shadow, is that these sacrifices would cover their sin. Is there a difference between sin being covered and sin being paid. Yes, it's kind of like sweeping dirt under a rug instead of picking it up and throwing it away. Okay. In one case, it's still there. In the other case, it's just gone. Patching something versus fixing it. Ooh, patching versus fixing, I like that, yeah. Covered is delayed punishment, and I think paid is the punishments paid for. Okay. So basically, this entire system, he's telling them not to trust it because all it does, all it's designed to do, really, is to highlight the current sinful condition and point everything, pointing toward the promised Messiah. That was the intent of all of it. So when Jesus sits down in that very first meeting and he opens up the book and he says, basically all these things are written about me, he's basically saying this entire law system, this whole sacrificial law-based shadow is I'm the one that it's pointing to. I'm the shadow that it's connected to, the person to whom it's connected. So he goes on then now as he builds his case on reasons to trust, and let's listen to five, uh, chapter 10, verses 5 through 10, and see if you can't pick up the first reason why Christ offered, uh, the first reason that uh, the author gives us to why uh, we should trust something else. Five through 10, Brenda. Are we unmuted? You are. Okay. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... 
you didn't want a sacrifice or an offering, but you prepared a body for me. You weren't pleased with entirely burned offerings or a sin offering. So then I said, look, I've come to do your will, God. This has been written about me in the scroll. He says above, you didn't want and you weren't pleased with a sacrifice or an offering or with entirely burned offerings or a purification offering, which are offered because the law requires them. Then he said, look, I've come to do your will. He puts an end to the first to establish the second. We have been made holy by God's will through the offering of Jesus Christ's body once for all. So there's, a, there's some First Testament quotations in there. And when you're, when you're doing an inductive study like we're doing, it's easy to get kind of wrapped up in that. And we'll, we'll definitely take a look at that. But he's making a case here. And I think he summarizes it for us. Who wants to take a stab at the reason, the first reason he's giving us as to why we ought to trust in Christ versus the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Could you ask that one more time? So we're, we're looking for the first reason why we are to trust in the Christ versus the law. I'll give you a hint. It's toward the very end, as in most of these arguments. He's going to make a case and then make a conclusion. Look at verse 10. Well, both, at the, both at the first beginning and, and toward the end, it, he makes the argument that God was not pleased with entirely burnt offerings or sin offering. Okay. So, you, yeah, that's a good way to start it, right? You shouldn't trust in something that God wasn't fully pleased with to start with. That's a good case. I hadn't thought about that one. But, yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, observation out of that. Well, and that's that's what leads into the last verse, because it's like a compare and contrast. I wasn't pleased with these things, but then you're made holy through the sacrifice of Christ. That's the key, right? So he gets to verse 10, and he kind of sums it all up, right? He gets to verse 10, and he says, the real reason, first reason you should trust is that Jesus offered his body once for all on our behalf. And the key there being it's a once-for-all sacrifice. Because remember, he's already made the case, right, that this reoccurring sacrificial system is not enough to perfect us, right? So he's already made that case. Now, he quotes, it's a significant quotation from the First Testament. It's, if you looked in your notes there, you probably noticed it's Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. He's quote, it's a, it's a pretty dead-on quote. You don't relish sacrifices or offerings. You don't require entirely burnt offerings or compensation offerings, but you have given me ears. So I said, here I come. I'm inscribed in the written scroll. I want to do your will, my God. Your instruction is deep within me. That's the quotation, Psalm 40, 6 through 8. So the first question we have to ask then, who is speaking in Psalm 40? Anybody know who's speaking in Psalm 40? Is it David? Yeah, it's King David. So King David is, is speaking, but it's this way in which the Psalms are often written 
where it's the words of David, but now the son of David, the Messiah, the son of David, is putting those words literally into his own mouth. He's saying, God doesn't delight in these sacrifices. It isn't what he really wanted. What God wanted, what was it that God wanted instead? He didn't want their sacrifice. What did he want? Obedience. That's the word. He wanted obedience. He wanted them to follow his will just as Jesus said he would do when he came to do the will of the Father. So that verse 7, that I, I, here I come, that's Jesus taking those words onto himself. It's the Messiah. He says, I am going to do what you failed to do. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to come and offer my body once for all on your behalf. So then what is the purpose of all of these external rituals? If they didn't make God happy, if they weren't enough to perfect us, what was the purpose of these external rituals? I mean, they were training wheels. They were for a child who's never ridden a bike before. I mean, you got to start somewhere, but the goal is for the kid to, to ride. Okay. You go back to Moses, okay? The law set up minimum standards of behavior. Okay. It didn't set up aspirational standards, it set up minimum standards of behavior. It's true. Yeah. Other purposes for this external rituals? I think I think it was also a practice of obedience. God desires our obedience. And so if we can be obedient with the law, then that draws us closer to God, should. And ultimately, I think God's plan for us is to not have the troubles that we cause ourselves in life. And if we can be obedient to the law, that minimizes those troubles. Okay. And David, is your question about the law in general or specifically the sacrifices? It could be any of those things, um, but I'm talking now specifically because of the context here about the offerings, um, specifically the ritual sacrifices, the offerings that they were required to bring. What was the purpose of those external rituals? Well, wasn't it also something else that we talked about before? There was like that as humans, we would feel bad, like having to kill the animal as a reminder for our sin. Was there like an emotional component there? Well, certainly, there's certainly that. That is certainly true, especially of the Passover, because um, especially during the time of Jesus, your once for all. By the way, you talked about that once for all sacrifice earlier on in the chapter likely a reference to the uh <clears throat> the atonement to the once a year offering sacrifice of atonement at passover and you would literally take that that unblemished animal and let them live in your house for a certain period of days before you would offer it so there was that idea that this is connected this is family this is something that that we are bringing to offer so there's certainly that aspect of it but the key i think is that we need to remember that the external rituals were supposed to show a person's internal attitude of remorse over their sin. So the external was supposed to be 
mirroring or supposed to be the outflow, right, of the internal change in attitude. So how do you think things ended up going wrong with these sacrifices? Because God said they, they're certainly not pleasing me. They would have pleased, the argument being they would have pleased him, right, if they were offered in obedience and if they were accurately reflecting a changed inside or internal attitude. So what went wrong with these sacrifices? There was a disconnect between the external practice and the internal state of remorse. And that essentially, being... that it became, it became legalistic and disconnected from its original purpose. So, oh, it's okay that I sinned because I'll just go do this without actually the feeling behind it. Yeah. And kind of like the purpose of when we do communion, that it's a time of reflection. It's not just a time of eating a wafer and dipping it in the cup. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I'll, I'll just go to the market, spend a few silver, and get a cup that I can go and sacrifice this afternoon. No big deal. I'm not even sure for some people that it, it was even the idea that, oh, I can, I can always go and do a sacrifice and I'll be okay. I think... A lot of people may have just gotten gotten into the habit of the sacrifices with no thought uh, as to really what it was all about, and um, so that makes that would make those people that were approaching the sacrifices in that manner no different than any other person in the community that that weren't that weren't. Uh, of God's chosen people. So it became an end or the goal in itself. Does that sound yeah. like a fair fair representation? In a shame culture, would there have been the same um, expectation that if you didn't do it, that you were seen as not doing a sacrifice, and so you did it anyway? You didn't have a choice. You had to. Right. No, no, she's, she's dead on. Yeah, and that shame culture, like, oh, I didn't see you there kind of thing, um, certainly. Um, and it says in verse 9, he says, he puts an end to the first to establish the second. What is he referring to? Does anybody know? What's that language about? It's getting rid of the, of the first uh, process of uh, trying to atone for sins through sacrifices. Right. So that first, the first refer references this Old Testament sacrificial law of, of uh, covenant, and he's replacing it now with this um, second one. Um, it should give us new meaning to the Last Supper when we, when we celebrate. He says, this is my body, which is given for you. He's directly tying it back to this piece that we've just read from the Psalms where he says, I've taken on the body. That body was required. He says, now I give this body for you. This is my willing sacrifice. And that's the reason to trust. He offered his body once for all on his behalf. And the result is, therefore, we've been made holy. We've been careful, just set apart, right? We've been made holy. So if we've been made holy through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, that's the first one. Let's look at verses 11 through 14 quickly and see if we can't um, pick up a second reason, and now you've seen how he's laid it out. So listen now for the second reason we ought to be able to, and we can trust. 11 to 14, Brenda. 
every priest stands every day serving and offering the same sacrifices over and over. Sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when this priest offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, he sat down at the right side of God. Since then, he's waiting until his enemies are made into a footstool for his feet because he perfected the people who are being made holy with one offering for all time. So he kind of summarizes it again at the end, but there's an image, there's a contrast that he's making that we ought to be able to pick up on. And he's using that contrast, that contrast to make his point. So what's the contrast that we can see between verse 11 and verse 12? This is a different kind of priest. This, this priest's sacrifice really, really accomplishes something as opposed to the other priests. But how, yes, that's true. But how specifically in this contrast does he make that case? Because it's a sacrifice in 11, it's a sacrifice that's done over and over again, where in 12, it's a one-time sacrifice, and then he sat at the right side of God. So you, you, you got it in the second part there. So there's a contrast between standing mm -hmm. and sitting. Mm -hmm. You nailed it, Janice. So at the end of verse 12, Verse 11, it says that every priest stands daily at his service. So what's the difference between standing versus sitting? What's the imagery? What's he trying to communicate there? Isn't that kind of like, um, like in the day when they had servants, like maybe the person who's standing is like the worker or the laborer, whereas you're a higher authority if you're the one sitting? Certainly there. Yeah. What else? The king, the king gets to sit down. Okay. And the work is done. Right. He's finished. He can sit down. That's a really big one, right? So if you're standing, the priests were required, in case you didn't know that, the priests were required always to stand. They could never sit when they were on duty. And part of there that is... There wasn't a place to sit either. There wasn't. That's exactly right. There wasn't a place to sit. And that's specifically so that they were communicating that there was always work to be done. There was always more sacrifices to be done because all they were doing was covering, but Jesus offered a single sacrifice and he sat down. Sitting down signifies completion, right? It's right. success. He sits down and notice where he sits down. At the right hand of the Father. He sits down at the right hand. What's that all about? What's the significance of the fact that he was able to sit at the right hand of God? What's the imagery of the right hand, sitting at the right hand? The favored one. That's the favor. That's the honor. Remember the disciples fighting? The mother of the disciples come and say, I want you to put my son on one side and my other son on the other side. Remember this whole thing, a position of honor being to the right side of the king. And remember last week we saw too that we are seated with Jesus in that same place. We are also, notice the word he used, we are seated. We're not standing. We are seated. That's why he can say for one, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being set apart. So he's sitting. Now in verse 13, I thought it was interesting. It said he's waiting until his enemies are made into footstools for his feet. What is he waiting for? Why is he waiting? I see Brenda is smiling. 
Why is he, why, why not subject all of his enemies to himself right now? What does he want to accomplish first? Well, we are the body. He, yep. he is the head, we are the body. So that means we need to be the one crushing enemies, crushing the spiritual enemies under our feet, which would be his footstool. We're smashing them to make his footstool. Why is he waiting then? Well, I think he's also trying to give everyone every opportunity to come and sit and join him by at his side. Yeah. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So even though his sacrificial work is done, it's complete, he's not done, right? Neither are we. And that's excellent. And neither are we. So the second reason we ought to trust is that Christ sat down. He signified that the work was done forever. And by the way, we also know that we too are seated. So as a result of that, he perfected the people who are being made holy, who are being set apart. And as Sherry said and others, set apart for a purpose, right? We are set apart for a purpose. Now, finally, in verses 15 to 18, he's going to give us a third reason. We're going to end with this. The third reason why the Holy Spirit assures us that we ought to trust in Jesus versus the law. Somebody, um, go ahead, Brenda's been doing it, 15 to 18. The final reason we can trust. The Holy Spirit affirms this when saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, says the Lord, I will place my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds, and I won't remember their sins and their lawless behavior anymore. When there is forgiveness for these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. The final reason we can trust, what do you think? Because he's making a covenant with us. Okay. He's making a promise. There's a promise. Okay, a covenant promise. Well, this tells me we have the Holy Spirit to rely on. So what's that? When you say rely on, rely on for what? To instruct us, okay. to let us know when we're following God's law or his desires versus when we're not. Okay. Yeah, I look at it when I will place the laws in their hearts. You know, when you're talking at the very beginning of the chapter, it's like the shadow of the law, but this is the Holy Spirit actually placing the law on our hearts. So in theory, it's no shadow. It's the real thing. Yep. <clears throat> Good. He has given us our forgiveness also. We can trust that. And he's, again, he's citing from a First Testament. In this case, it's Jeremiah 31, 33 to 34. And he's talking about, uh, which is a passage about the new covenant. And it's, the author now attributes that to the Holy Spirit. In other words, that I will, I will build this new covenant. I will put it in their heart. That is the role of the Holy Spirit. So the third reason to trust is that the cost of sin has been paid and our sin is forgotten, 
And the Holy Spirit is there to remind us of that, continually remind us of that because the law has been placed in our hearts. Sin has been paid and our sin is forgotten. What does it mean? I mean, can God literally forget our sins? He chose to. It says in the Psalms, for, from the east to the west, he, that's, that's as far as his, he's cost our sins. I don't think he actually forgets our sins, but I think what he's saying is that it's as if he forgot that you know, uh, he's, not, he's not going to hold them against us. It's as if he forgot our sins. I thought it was so it's certainly not forgiveness as in the way we think of it in human thinking of forgetfulness. I thought it was interesting that in verse one, um, the law is capitalized. And in this time, law is not capitalized, which also signifies the change from the written law to the, the laws that Jesus has broken, but that we still hold in our hearts. Yeah, well said. So it's not that our sin somehow slipped God's mind. I think it's what Sherry had identified. It's, it's a choice that God makes not to remember. And when he sees us, he sees Jesus instead. Right. We are his righteousness because of Christ. So, cool would you, David, would you uh, reiterate the three reasons to trust again? Sure. Let me go over here and make sure I say them the same way. So the first reason that he gives to trust is that Jesus offered his body once for all on our behalf. And then, therefore, we've been made holy or set apart. The second reason to trust is that Christ sat down, signifying that his work was done. In other words, it's completed. We don't have to worry about continually offering that, and we've been made holy. And the third reason now is that we should trust is the cost of sin has been paid for, and it's been forgotten. In other words, God has chosen not to remember it any longer. So that's actually good, Nancy, because it leads to this question. What does it mean to know that God has not only forgiven our sins, but forgotten about them? Does that change anything? How does that, uh, what does that mean to know that? Or what would have it meant to, for them and for us to know that? It feels, it makes the relationship feel different because sometimes in our relationships with one another, there's still that kind of like, holding a grudge and remembering that you did this, we're still going to move forward and I still love you, but you know, I'm still like upset about this thing that you did. So it kind of makes it a more comfortable and loving <laughs> relationship to look at him as our father. And I think too, it makes it with what she was saying is with humans, when you, there's forgiveness, but they don't forget. So the way they operate with you is change. And the way they may have a relationship with you has changed. Whereas with Christ, even though you you may have sinned and you've you've repented and you've been saved, He doesn't hold that against you. And the relationships not changed. He's always reestablishing the relationship. That's true. Well said. And it says that we're a new creation now. It's true. We're no longer under His judgment. Others? He's not holding our sin over our head 
kind of like in the Old Testament, you know, they had this weight of their sin every single year. They had to keep going back and back and back, but it's no longer dangling over our heads anymore. It's like a one and done. You are now in God's salvation. It's true. So let me, let me ask it another way. What happens when we're not able to accept God's gift of forgiveness for our sins and his willingness to forget them? What happens when we're not able to accept it? I mean, or his willingness to forget them. Does that make sense? Some of you are looking at me like I've... I'm Say just, that again, please. Yeah, so what happens when and if we're not able to accept God's gift of forgiveness and his willingness to forget those sins? I, mean, I guess I'm confused because like God gives us like his Holy Spirit and he right. compels us to respond to his gracious gift. So I feel like if that has happened, it would be impossible to decline that gift. I think it's hard to, I mean, I know that if I have really hurt certain people and you know, I, I that they they always see me in that light. It's very difficult, I think, for me to feel motivated if I can use a very human word to change, to grow from that. But if I know that I've got a clean slate, that they truly forgotten it, and I can start from ground zero, I mean, for me personally, that makes a huge difference. It's like Les Miserables. I mean, when the priest forgives Jean Valjean, I mean, it was a game changer. Exactly. But that's a great illustration. And, and Catherine, it might answer your, your question. Because even though it was offered, so beautifully offered in that picture, the problem with Jean Van, with Jean, I'm not going to try to say his whole name. Jean Valjean. Valjean. That one. Um, is that he <laughs> was unable to, for whatever reason, he was unable to accept it. And what was the resulting issue then? What what were the challenges? That came Hello. <laughs> well, the dogs barked. Well, that's true. <laughs> I, I think, uh, and this not specifically to to that scene, but that, or that that situation, but it applies um, when we don't accept. It, it, when we don't believe that that we have this gift, it's almost like we're saying that God didn't do enough. That we have to stand back up. You get what I'm saying? I, I don't know if I'm choosing. No, I, I think we do. The imagery well, I saw was is, is people are going back to that First Testament state of mind then. You know, if they're rejecting mm -hmm the offering that is there, they feel like they're going back to a First Testament style of living. It's that God's capacity, oh, go ahead. Uh, this goes back to the first questions we were talking about. What does it take to actually trust this? Um, the problem is we have the option to trust or not trust. Correct. And we don't always put the trust in the things that are good or best for us. And sometimes we take other inputs and want to trust those instead. That's a better God's way to say it. Yeah. God's capacity to trust and forget my sin, I mean, not to trust, to forgive and forget my sins is far greater than my capacity to do that for myself. 
And so I might, I totally believe it in my head that he does that absolutely positively for sure. He does forgive and he does forget. However, that doesn't mean it's as easy for me to do that in my heart for myself to also say, okay, God forgave me. I'm moving on that lingering guilt, not doubt that he did, but just guilt over how sad I am that I did that, that can go on forever and is really hard to deal with sometimes. So it's not a matter of, I don't believe that he does that, or I don't trust that he does that. It's that it's hard to get myself there sometimes. So that's the difference. You just, and maybe I should ask it that way in the first place is, I think we would all agree that he's made his case that we should believe that he's made the case, but trust, which is the whole key behind this whole study is that trusting that forgiveness of our sin and that he has forgotten that sin. We can struggle with that. And when we struggle with that trust, then we struggle with the ability to forgive ourselves. And then we hang on to that burden of, of guilt. And then that guilt affects our ability to relate with others and God. You see what I'm saying there? So that lack of trust in believing that we've received that forgiveness and that God no longer remembers those sins, trusting that is the challenge. And when we don't, it has, in many cases, incalculable effects on our relationship with God and the people around us because we're constantly in this sense of I've got to overcome this guilt, this shame, this burden of guilt that I have. And then all we've done is what Dan said is we've become our own priests and we're standing up trying to do everything we can, right? To somehow make it right. Does that make sense? That's kind of what I was trying to get at. And I think if we're living in that kind of a uh, belief and realm ourselves, then we're going to be more judgmental of other people because we're going to be thinking, well, they need to straighten up too, because, you know, God doesn't want them to act like that either. And we might be more condemning and judgmental to others if we don't believe for our own selves that he's uh, totally cleansed and forgiven us and, and doesn't hold our sins against us. Catherine? I think everyone has experienced being forgiven, but feeling like you're not really forgiven because the memory still lingering in that person's mind and is always there. I, I do think we, I think we don't talk about forgetting enough. I, and I think the forgiving means a lot less when it's not coupled with that forgetting. True. Catherine. Um, so you're not talking about salvation. Correct. You're not talking about people like, denying God's irresistible grace. You're right. talking about people who are already believers. Yes. How can they trust in the grace that they've already received? That's correct. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Just the process of trusting what we know to be true. Nancy said it beautifully. Like I believe it a hundred percent, but do I trust it in that same hundred percent whereby I'm letting to willing to forgive myself let go of that burden of guilt so it doesn't affect my ability to relate to God properly and with each other properly. I think it comes down to what you choose to focus on. Focus on what you've been promised or, foc- or focusing solely on yourself. Mm. Well said. Yep. Very true. So final question. If we've been made holy, which I think is the case he's made, 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Did you see that theme going over and over again, right? Once for all, once for all, no need for sacrifices. Christ did it once for all so that we are holy, we are set apart. So why are we still so unholy? <laughs> it's because of our pastor. Oh, okay. Pass the buck here. I've been getting a lot of that. Uh, some of you may have seen a post yesterday where I was accused of hiding donuts or something. <laughs> By the way, they weren't mine. They were too. <laughs> Just following the example led by Joseph, storing up your donuts for future famines. Uh -huh. That's what it was. Why are we still so unholy? We're human. Are we haven't we? been perfected yet. It says we haven't been perfected yet. It's a process. So there's the difference between positionally and practically. Right. So that's the that's the idea. He's making the case that positionally this has been done. We are set apart. We are holy. Now we are in the process, right, through becoming more like Christ in our everyday practice. So how exactly do we do that? And I know the first answer is going to be to read the Bible 100 <laughs> percent have that as a given. But I think that many of us, including myself, are educated well beyond my level of obedience. <laughs> so how exactly do we do that? What are the challenges that we face in becoming more like Christ in our everyday practices? So that our positional matches up with our practical, because that's the goal, right? I think the loving Father who loves us so much that he's giving us the opportunity to stumble, make mistakes, screw up, try again, make the mistakes again, try again, moving towards the direction of us becoming more like him. And more than anything, at least for me personally, it's, it's one of the biggest testimonies of what makes the gospel so powerful is I don't know of another religion, another thought system where the ultimate being has that kind of patience and grace in us. It's a, a growing process mm. every day, I think. Mom, there's the Bible verse, uh, what is it, renewing of our mind, you know. That, that's a process. That's not like flat out done. It's a, your mind is renewing. So, you know, it moves towards something, you know, daily. And it's or, interesting because that's Romans 12 and he's using the imagery of sacrificing on a daily, right? Giving of yourself to Christ. Yeah. I know that for, for me, um, the more I embrace what has been called the mystical, and let go of the checklists, the Nancy checklists. If I read my Bible, check. If I memorize verses, check. If I have um, fellowship with believers, check. The more I let go of all of those things that I can do to feel good about my Christianity um, and just sit in God's presence quietly in an uncomfortable, isn't something supposed to be happening here? Right. Uh, frame of mind, 
um, the more I do that, embrace the mystical and just sit in God's presence and listen, the better off I am in terms of bringing the, realizing my position with him. Good. I think that it's, um, a lot of times we try to look at it from how we feel and not an aspect of how God or Christ feels. And so we can't, we can't embrace that he truly has forgiven us. He truly has forgotten us. And we get bowed down in the shame and the guilt. And so it really is trust because I think one of the reasons we are so unholy is because we don't really trust that it has been forgiven and it has been forgotten because we can't forgive and we don't forget. Well said. Well said. I, I think I would add that sometimes it just takes being faced with adversities like we're going through now. And we are to go out and love one another. Or stay home and love one another. <laughs> Excellent. By six feet apart. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really easy to base our uh, belief in our salvation on, on what uh, Johannes was saying, a feeling. And we, we can't trust our feelings and, and trust faith in, in what Christ did for us can't be based on a feeling because we know every day our feelings go up and down, up and down, up and down. And so I think faith is more than just a feeling. What I thought I'd like to do as we wrap up our time, and, and I apologize if some of you have seen this already, um, but um, there's a group out of Nashville um, that has put out a, a virtual choir, and probably some of you have seen it, but I thought it would be appropriate for us. I, I loved it so much, I've, I've saved it here, and I should be able to save this across the screen. It's about a five-minute um, song, um, It Is Well With My Soul, and if you've seen it, um, I apologize ahead of time, but it's so beautiful. I wanted to share it, and then we'll come together for a final thought and um, our announcements and words of the grace. All right, let me try to share the screen here and give me two seconds, and we should be good to go. Let me see. Can you all see it? Not yet. No. We can't see anything. Like sea billows
you enjoyed this episode of the table dallas podcast we invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables to learn more about us please check out our website at thetabledallas.com we are saving a seat for you at the table